As people get older, they are taking into account the emotional aspects of the decision perhaps a little more. Welcome to the On Wisdom Podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Grossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, let me thank our listeners. Thank you so much for listening so far. If you like our podcast, please continue subscribing. And if you know somebody who may like this or who may benefit from some wisdom, recommend our podcast to them. (laughs) Today, we have a special guest as usual. We only have special guests this time of the year. And uh, it's a dear friend of mine, Mara Mather, who is a professor of uh, gerontology and psychology at the USC Leonard uh, Davis School of Gerontology, which runs the Emotion and Cognition Laboratory. The first time I heard about Mara was when I was still in graduate school, and uh, Mara was one of the key scientists in the realm of gerontology. It's a science of aging and uh, social, emotional, and motivational process. So what does it mean to get older in terms of your motives, in terms of your brain process, and in terms of your emotions? And this is what we will hear about today. Uh, But first of all, Mara, thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't you say a few words about what your lab is doing? Great. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, my lab research is generally emotion and cognition, how mm-hmm. emotion influences cognition and how that changes with aging. And we're very interested in the brain mechanisms of all of this. So we are currently especially interested in a small brain region called the locus ceruleus, which is the source of most of the brain's noradrenaline or norepinephrine. And we're Mm -hmm. also really interested in how to tamp that activity down. So that norepinephrine, the LC, locus ceruleus norepinephrine system is really a hub region for sympathetic activity that gets you going and excited when something important is happening. But there's also a very important parasympathetic system, and we're very interested Mm -hmm. in in that and the balance between them. Well, I was just going to say thank you for pronouncing those words, locus ceruleus, because I've been wondering all week how that's pronounced. So uh, (laughs) I'm going to need to do that later. So so thanks for preventing me from looking too stupid. Before we get into, because we're going to get into that sort of detail a little bit later. We'll unpack that. Yeah, I I just wanted to, Mara, like in stuff of yours I've read, you talk about how when we have a memory, certain things stand out more than others. And before we got into sort of the research, could you just tell us about a memory of yours from your own life, something that stands out as particularly vivid? And if you have any thoughts as to why that might stand out. Any thoughts? So if you don't mind, I'd love to tell you about a friend's memory. So I've had these conversations with friends trying to come up with good examples. And my favorite example is from a friend uh, named Kira who works for a large company that Mm -hmm. has workers all through the U.S. And once a year, they have a major meeting. And as part of this meeting, they have an award they give out that is for the employee of the year. And this award is given out in a really fun way. They have made videos of the employees, coworkers mm-hmm. talking about the employee and funny oh, anecdotes nice. oh, about yeah, the employee. Cool. And yeah. every year she really enjoys this and tries to guess if she knows the person. Mm-hmm. And one year she was really stumped because she felt she really should know this person given what division they seemed to work in and what, what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, she couldn't figure out who it was until they said the, was it her? someone mentioned. Yes, it was her. <laughs> they mentioned <laughs> this person was a shot putter and she's a shot putter, which is a obscure track and field event. Mm-hmm. And 
she realized this must be her and it all clicked and it was this moment and she has no idea how she got up on stage. She has no idea what she said, but she'll probably remember that moment of discovering it was her and that um, she was the person they were talking about for the rest of her life because, you know, it was a very big deal. And she got to watch the videos later and that was really a bizarre experience for her too because she felt like she remembered the videos from previous years about other coworkers mm. quite well, but this experience, it was like she had barely seen them. Wow. And so she had a lot of amnesia for this, you know, wonderful experience, surprise, shock, but also a very vivid memory of that moment when she realized it was her and, you know, overall a very strong memory of that experience. So this sort of memory is a great example of Mm. those emotional moments in life where we can have very vivid memories for certain things and most of the rest of it can be strangely forgotten in ways that otherwise we would not forget what had happened. That is fascinating. So it's hyper hyper memory in one regard and then complete amnesia in other aspects. Yeah. Charles, do you have something like that too? Well, I'm asking the questions, Eagle. I I was going to ask you because I I I actually, I don't think I, I don't think I have an example of such massive imbalance in terms of what I do and don't remember about something. I mean, I have also all sorts of weird memories about like my very first memory. I remember through my own eyes and also I remember seeing it from the other side of the room, which I know one of those is probably the second one. It's obviously not real. Uh, that's probably a completely different episode. But I don't, I don't, I don't think I have an, um, an example of, of this massive unbalance. Interesting. And I think a lot of the time we don't examine our memories. No, not, definitely not enough. Carefully because we don't know what the reality was. But I think a lot of emotional memories have this intense quality of vivid memories for certain things. But we also, if someone actually quizzed us pretty carefully, we mm. might have poorer memory for some of the other details than we would otherwise. Mm, fascinating. I'm just wondering, like, as a society becomes more and more reliant on all this type of gadgets and devices that can basically allow you to offload your memory, is our memory becoming better or worse? Uh, mm-hmm. As we sort of like becoming sort of so dependent on our smartphones and whatnot. And we can always sort of like probably find, or at least somebody can be, is still kind of watching us uh, probably. And uh, we can probably retrieve some form of interesting. Well, I think it's been a gradual process. Yeah. You know, it used to be that there weren't even many written books. And so there were storytellers who right. could tell whole oracles and pass them on through the generations. And so we've lost that skill. I mean, our grandparents' generation could memorize poetry and, and did that regularly. Yeah. And we don't right, really yeah. do that. So I think yeah. it's, you know, just what is it that we practice and we try to remember? And nowadays, people don't remember their own phone numbers. You know? Yeah. Uh, so. My wife always accuses me that I don't remember her phone number. Yeah, That's I get really that. Bad. I do get that. That's right. I was thinking, you know, when people often say you go to a, see a show or a band play or, or you go to see the Grand Canyon or something, people are often so keen to make a record of it that they pull mm-hmm. themselves out of the emotional dimension of the situation uh, to make a record of it so that they might not form that emotional memory in the first place because they pull themselves back from it. Yes, well, I have two very good friends who have been at the core of a debate about this. So Linda Henkel was Mm -hmm. uh, the one who did the first study where in museums, if she had people photograph things, they didn't remember them as well. Right, right. And then uh, Kristen Deal here at USC, another good friend, 
did the refutation study that actually, if you photograph things, you end up remembering them better. And I don't, <laughs> I, I honestly can't remember how this could be reconciled, these two yeah. perspectives. Right. But yeah. it is it is a debatable thing in the field right now <laughs> as to right. whether uh, pulling out your phone mm. helps you remember or hurts your memory. And I think there's probably reasons to think both ways. So, you know, if you're taking the picture, you're not paying as much attention to the thing. But if you're ta- if you've decided to take a picture, you're sort of marking this thing yeah. as being important, yeah. and you might look at it later. So it's interesting. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, so so far we talked about memory, but one thing that uh, you are an expert on is emotions and sort of emotional aging. And of course, it's all interrelated in some ways, and we'll unpack that for our listeners in a second. But uh, let's start a bit broader uh, with the question, how our emotional lives change as the brains age? Because obviously the brains change over time. Uh, some of my, us may have noticed it already. <laughs> uh, and so the question is, uh, what about our emotions and uh, how that sort of accompanies these brain changes? Mara, what, do you, uh, what, what does the research show in that? Maybe you can explain in very broad terms, first of all, listeners, what are the most basic processes that unfold there? It's been very interesting because we see striking age-related changes in emotion. In particular, I'm thinking of the positivity effect where as people get older, they tend to pay more attention relatively to positive over negative information compared to what younger adults pay attention to. And we see it a little bit as well in mood, that negative mood tends to go down as people get older to a certain point in their 70s or so. But interestingly, there's almost no link with Mm -hmm. the brain in terms of it causing this improvement in the balance of mood and attention and memory. But there are lots of interesting roles for the brain. So so in general, we're seeing that mood improves in older adults, and we're seeing that they're showing this positivity effect. But it looks like older adults who are showing decline in, in parts of the brain that help them control their own attention and what they're focusing on the most... Mm-hmm. So prefrontal decline or executive decline, those older adults don't show this increase, this positive um, sort of trend in their mood and attentional biases. So it seems like this is rather different. I mean, your your question really is a sort of traditional question. We've got brain declining with age and we've got some sort of thing that's changing with age. And so it seems obvious right. that mm-hmm. it should be the brain changes that are causing these age changes. But the emotional domain, we see something quite different and really interesting, which is that as far as we can tell, people's emotional state is becoming more positive, at least in part because their time perspective is changing. So this is something that came from Laura Carstensen's socio-emotional selectivity theory, this idea that we all have some sense of time and time left in life in particular. And as that gets shorter, we focus more on emotionally meaningful goals. So when I came to work with her as a postdoc in her lab, we were interested Mm -hmm. in how this might relate to attention and memory. And it wasn't really clear whether this would make people focus more on positive or negative information. But what we have found consistently since that time is that Older adults, if you just ask them to sit down and 
watch a slideshow of pictures, some of which are negative, like a cockroach on a pizza or a couple visiting a grave site. Or there's some positive pictures like bunnies or, you know, a really cute baby (laughs) or some really attractive dessert. There are age differences in which pictures people are most likely to remember. And the older adults are less likely to recall pictures in general because they have a poorer memory overall. But Mm -hmm. of what they recall, more of it tends to be positive and less of it tends to be negative. And so we were thinking this, this really fits with this time perspective idea. Mm-hmm. But there's been a lot of pushback, as you can imagine, in the field. For instance, some esteemed colleagues came out with a model they called the aging brain model to account for these findings where they compared older adults to amygdala lesion patients. And they argued mm-hmm. that the amygdala is especially attuned to negative and things, and maybe the amygdala is declining in aging. And so older adults right. don't get that little oomph that you get for, to pay attention to something negative. Right. But that doesn't really fit with our pattern of findings because if we um, flash two pictures on the screen and one of them is negative and arousing, older adults tend to look there first, just like younger adults do, but then they tend to look away. And they, in general, they notice threatening things faster than other things, just like younger adults do, but they're not allocating extended attention to them and and remembering them later. So it, it mm-hmm. seems like something more intentional, which would fit with this, you know, you're trying to focus on things that are emotionally going to maximize your emotion right now, and you're not trying to optimize for the future. So we've done things like had manipulated time perspective in both younger and older adults, and and we can induce younger adults to look more at, uh, to remember the positive things more if we ask them to imagine that they'll die in six months. So nice. it's a pretty right. counterintuitive thing. Uh, if you're thinking you're, you're, you know, about to die, um, you know, just imagining it, people end up remembering more of the positive pictures. So it's, it's a really interesting domain because it's uh, one where we are seeing that older adults who show brains that look the most young in terms of their prefrontal function and their executive function are looking the Mm -hmm. most different in terms of their emotions from the younger adults. And the way I account for that is that they have different goals than the younger adults, just walking around default goals. And they're using that intact prefrontal system to, to fulfill their goals, which are different than younger adults goals. So if they are able to engage those prefrontal regions, then they really are the ones that look the most different. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, and we had uh, a Laura on our podcast earlier where we tried to get into this uh, nitty-gritty of this a little bit more. So for our listeners, if, they are, if you guys are interested in the topic of socio-emotional selectivity, please uh, look for Laura Carson podcast. But let me push back a little bit against mm-hmm. this idea as we are on the topic of the positivity effect. Uh, we had Laura on our podcast. We also had Simin Vazir on our podcast uh, where we talk about you know the value of replications. And it seems to me that uh, there's a number of different studies that have accumulated on the topic of the positivity effect. There were at least two meta-analyses that were done that led to somewhat different conclusions. One of them says there is no positivity effect. If anything, there's a decline negativity effect. The other one says, no, there is actually a positivity effect. Uh, then the first one has a neutral condition. Uh, the other one doesn't have a neutral condition. If I were to be critical, wouldn't I be able, what do you think about this? And uh, uh, tell me uh, what you think. If I were to tell you that, you know, if I want to find a positivity effect, I could design a study that would show a positivity effect. But if I were to 
be after a study that would not show a positivity effect in old age. I could just design a study that would not show a positivity effect. Is that a too critical evaluation of the current state of the field? Some people, for instance, say that, uh, well, you know, maybe positivity effect is real, but only under some circumstances. And then the question is, so what? What does it actually refer to when I, uh, that I'm not able to observe it all the time? What is your take on the current state of this fairly rich and important question, whether it's motivational or not, whether it um, is a robust phenomenon or not in the first place? Sure. So I'm convinced it's a robust phenomenon. I don't know that I could. So it's a robust phenomenon, but it is from the very beginning. It was a mm-hmm. small to medium effect size. Okay. And that um, if you look at power analyses and the sort of sample size that you need to have 80% power to detect a small to medium effect size, it's somewhere in the 50 to 60 participants per group. And so a lot of the early studies, I mean, it got a lot of interest when we first published these findings. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were, at the time, typical N of 20 in the older adult group and maybe N of 30. And so you've got quite low power. And so that is an issue. Um, So Mm -hmm. then what we need to do when we have a field where we've got a lot of those sort of uh, results is a meta-analysis can be helpful. And so, as you mentioned, there have been two meta-analyses. The first one just looked at any study that had some emotional stimuli and had younger or older adults. And so they were looking at these four cells where you've got older, younger, positive, negative, and they could be filled by different studies. And I if I remember very- correctly, uh, that this uh, first map analysis also included the neutral condition. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the problem there is that you could have qualitatively different studies that are being done with older and younger adults mm-hmm. in emotional domains. I know that I talk to colleagues and they say, oh, you know, we don't want to use the nude pictures in the emotional, in this affective picture set that's widely nude used. Nude pictures, with, my goodness. <laughs> yes, there are nude pictures. It's very hard to get highly intense, positive images and but so nudes it. are yeah. among that, them. That, that's a positive image i guess depends <laughs> right. on what the new it is supposed is. to be yeah who knows across age groups but <laughs> um, but uh you can imagine that people experimenters might construct quite different picture mm-hmm. sets for older and for younger adults they might avoid the really gory bloody terrible ones also with the older adults mm-hmm. so i think it's problematic if you don't have the same stimuli with the same where you're comparing older and younger adults and then also you can't it's very difficult in the emotion field because you can't counterbalance whether something is positive or negative so you can't just say oh you know the positivity effect older adults are going to remember more positive things than negative things it's always going to be relative to younger adults because depending on your stimuli set it might be that you've got some really memorable positive things so both younger and older will generally remember more positive or it could be the other way around so i think it's very important to when you're looking at this is there a change in the bias of positive versus negative in older versus younger that when you're looking across studies that you'll you focus Mm -hmm. on studies that had both older and younger adults with the same stimuli and they had both positive and negative in the same study. So then that that was the case for the second meta-analysis. And they, at the time, there were a hundred studies in the literature that met those criteria. And they found that the positivity effect was a small to medium effect size and that it actually was Mm -hmm. greater in the studies where 
people did not have some other task to do while they looked at the pictures or words or whatever the stimuli were. So if you were being asked to, you know, memorize these pictures for, you know, to tell them to someone else who's going to draw them later, you've got a very specific Mm -hmm. goal that might override this goal of feeling good in the moment. And so it seems like this age-related change is bigger, the more flexible, the more open the situation was to for people's own goals to operate so that made sense too and you know for me it really is a robust finding Mm -hmm. i mean i've i've worked on a number of things that are hard to elicit in the lab and you know Mm -hmm. don't replicate and sort of die out but this thing just keeps popping up so uh, for instance uh, you know, it's not my main line of research anymore, but a postdoc in my lab was had come from a lab where they studied this phenomenon called emotion-induced blindness. So you, in this paradigm, you flash pictures very quickly at people, mm-hmm. and these pictures are almost all scenes, and your task as a participant is just to say, was there a rotated scene? And if so, was it to the right or to the left? So, you know, it might be a church and you have to say whether it was rotated to the right or the left. And it's very fast presentation of all these different scenes. And the thing is that if you, in the middle of that rapid serial presentation, if you present an emotional picture, people show blindness basically to the, that rotated picture that happened just before that emotional picture. And so this is a very robust phenomenon. And the, Phenomenon had only been tested in younger adults, and younger mm-hmm. adults show blindness for both for positive and for negative pictures, for the things that happened before them, I should say. Right. And so we were curious, would older adults show this blindness, and would they show it anymore for positive things, indicating they were paying more attention to positive things? It seemed really unlikely to me that we'd see the positivity effect in this context, because if it really is a goal-directed process, then it shouldn't be operating at this really, you know, two to 400 millisecond really fast time frame that this blindness is taking place at. So mm-hmm. we ran the study, you know, mainly just out of curiosity. And we were quite surprised because older adults did show more blindness for positive. You know, the positive pictures made it harder for them to report what had happened just beforehand than the negative pictures did. Mm. And so this made me think, well, maybe this positivity effect isn't about goals after all. Maybe there's something in the brain that's, you know, changed that means that it's, it's happening that fast. So <laughs> we thought, well, we should test the goal account. And okay. previously we um, had tested this goal hypothesis by simply having older adults, while they looked at a slow-paced picture slideshow, have some working memory task that they had to do while they looked at each picture. So in our case, they heard tones and they had to report how often the pattern changed. Mm-hmm. They had to keep track of that. And mm-hmm. what we'd found in that study was that older adults don't show a positivity effect when they have something else that's occupying their prefrontal cortex, when they are engaged in some other difficult task that's taking up executive resources. Most mm-hmm. of what they remember is negative. So this... Um, you know, is quite interesting because it suggests that they're using their cognitive resources mm, to right. amp up positive and tamp down negative. And so we tried this out in this rapid serial presentation context. And to our surprise, it worked in that the um, older adults, again, 
if we if they did not have a working memory load, we replicate the finding that they are more blind to pictures happening before positive pictures. But if they had a load, actually they get better at the pictures, numerically better at the um, pictures appearing, noticing which way they're rotated if it, if it appears before something positive. So the load is making them look more like younger adults in terms of their, you know, not showing any bias for positive or negative in terms of their blindness. So it suggests that for older adults, this um, positivity effect mm-hmm. is something that might be goal direct, that is goal directed. They're using these cognitive resources to implement it, but it's very automatic. They're not needing time to implement it. It's just, they're ready to operate at any moment unless they're occupied with some other thing that's very cognitively demanding. Fascinating. So there are two more uh, interrelated questions, if you can indulge me like to mm-hmm. uh, uh, add here. And uh, the questions concern a general uh, state of the field of aging research, especially in the neuroscience, where you often compare uh, people who are young to people mm-hmm. who are old, who often grew up in different cultures. And often in neuroscience studies, especially if you mm-hmm. have to bring people into the scanner, the samples have to be rather small because it's so expensive. Um, and so my question is, what is the role of culture and this kind of different cohort effects? And by cohort effects, I mean actually cultural effects of growing up in different cultures. Does this positivity effect replicate in other parts of the world? Uh, do you think the goals may look different, uh, let's say, if mm-hmm. you test somebody from China, from Japan? Right. So we have replicated it in Korea and others have replicated it in Korea. I know in Hong Kong, it doesn't always replicate. Um, so I don't know if there are, you know, going to turn out to be a role of culture or not. But you're absolutely right that we have different cohorts that we're testing. And there's always this lurking question of whether there's something about the cohort rather than the age itself. Mm. And so really, we, we desperately need longitudinal studies to be able to see whether this uh, is something that will change in the same person over time. We do have longitudinal studies of just mood mm-hmm. and, and current affect, and there we see that uh, there are changes in the same person over time where, in general, people become less negative and maybe a little more positive until a certain age, somewhere in the 60s, 70s, and then it levels off and eventually declines. And it seems that that decline late in life is related to illness. Mm-hmm. So we kind of discussed about people, their own emotions, maybe shifting more towards the positive end of the spectrum over the aging period. But I'm interested in how, as we get older, how our abilities to recognize other people's emotions changes and and whether this might relate to how they interact with other people. Do they get better mm-hmm. or worse, perhaps, at, at understanding how other people are feeling? So uh, do we know anything about how, how how that changes as people age? Yeah, absolutely. So People have tried to link this to the positivity effect, but I don't think that it's, I think there's independent things going on here. So there are are definitely age differences in the ability to recognize emotions. And it's interesting because it doesn't simply fall break down in terms of positive versus negative. Generally, older adults do worse at recognizing most negative emotions like fear and anger. Mm -hmm. They do quite well at happiness, but they also do very well at disgust. Ooh, um, sometimes disgust. even better 
been younger. Ah, yeah. So Maybe becoming a memorial or something? <laughs> no, I don't. I think it's very morality? simple. I think okay. it's quite simple, which is that some studies have found that there are age differences in what part of the face people focus on. So that mm-hmm. when uh, you look at younger people, they tend to focus most on the eyes. And there's certain right. emotions like anger and, and fear too that are very eye centric. Mm-hmm. And the older adults tend to look less at the eyes and a little more at the mouth. And so mm-hmm. there are certain emotions that are really, you know, happiness is certainly a big mouth emotion. Yeah, yeah. And, and disgust is really sort of in the nose and mouth uh, where you see it. So that, I think, can account for most of the age differences because we're usually looking at visual face facial sort of things. And there's there haven't right. been a whole lot of studies looking at, you know, say how body motion or the tone of voice or things like that that aren't visual. That's fascinating. So like more studies on disgust sensitivity could be in order to, to actually <laughs> right. how people react to disgusting situations. So. But I suppose but, empathy requires more than just recognizing what someone's demonstrating their face. You know, you, you might have to think about mm-hmm. how that would make someone feel. So how does that break down? Right. So you have this sort of idea about theory of mind, you know, in a very little kid, um, right. you, <laughs> you have these, these scenarios where someone moves an, a reward from under one or behind one door to another. And then the person who didn't see it comes back and the kids ask, you know, which way did it, do they know which door it's behind? And the kid right, thinks that right. they know, yeah. mm-hmm. but to have theory of mind, you have to realize, Oh, they weren't there. They're yeah. not going to know yeah. that yeah. this happened. They don't have the same context contents of their mind as I do right now. And so that's a that's a aspect of empathy is just trying to figure out what is the state of that person's mind and what they believe about the world. And that seems to decline in aging as well. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a difficult thing to test, as you can imagine. Mm. I had just one last question on this, which is about the um, Iowa gambling task, which is yeah. it was, it's kind of interesting. I didn't really know much about this, but from my understanding, there's um, it's used to sort of probe a little bit uh, the decision-making process. And it throws up some interesting um, findings about how decision-making works and changes as we get older. My understanding, just the task itself is you usually have like four different packs of cards and you have to pick cards from the different decks and, and the, the cards have been arranged. So some of the decks are sort of better or good decks and some of them are bad decks and younger people and older people seem to respond to this. They spot the good and bad decks at different stages or they, they have different responses to them. So maybe you could Tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. that and, and what does that tell us about how our decision-making changes as we get older? Well, it's interesting because there's a very strong stereotype. You know, researchers are subject to stereotypes too. <laughs> yeah. We forget about it sometimes that we're all humans yeah. and therefore yep. subject to the same stereotypes and biases. Yeah. So there's a very strong one in decision-making, which is that mm-hmm. people get less risky as they get older. And that fits with a lot of what we see around us in the world, you know, Mm -hmm. financially people switch their investments from risky stocks to safe, secure bonds and and things like that. Mm, People aren't as likely to go um, skydiving. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things where it looks like people are making less risky decisions, but it's really interesting because I've spent some time working on decision-making and there's almost no good laboratory evidence. If you just bring people into the lab and have like a task that's divorced from their lives you know, mm-hmm. where they're betting on gambles and they can real win real money. But, you know, are older adults actually less risk-seeking? And there's very little evidence for that. And okay. the Iowa gambling task is one laboratory task that 
test for risk-seeking. And there have been a number of studies now looking at age differences. And it's interesting there because the age differences seem to depend a lot on the memory and learning aspects about the deck. So the age differences get bigger the further along you get. And it seems that um, they might be related to memory issues more than Uh, risk-seeking differences. But then there's also some really interesting uh, valence differences too, which is that Mm -hmm. when modeled what sort of information they're learning the most from, the the older adults seem to learn both from wins and losses, whereas the younger adults seem to learn the most from the losses. So Hmm. there could be something going on there too. That's interesting. So it might might not be about decision making at all. It might be just about their mm-hmm. because the memory is is not as um, robust as it was perhaps earlier. They they're unable to learn what is available to be learned from the process. Right. Right. Exactly. Huh. So this learning from wins and losses sounds almost like a better strategy under some yeah, circumstances. That sounds good. It's almost more balanced. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. So the Iowa gambling task is set up so that people in general. Are I think their tendency is to pick that deck that wins a lot, but also has a big cost. So people in general are a little bit too risky. There's another Mm -hmm. standard gambling task, which is this balloon analog risk task, where you have to blow up a balloon, and the bigger it gets, the more money you get when you cash out. But at any Mm -hmm. button press where you're going to make it a little bigger, Mm -hmm. it could pop. (laughs) And so you've got this risk, and, and there people are generally a little bit not quite risky at seeking enough. So it's interesting, you know, just um, the, it's hard to set up a task where it favors, you know, it's a really neutral. It's always been skeptical of that task. It doesn't seem like there would be proper psychometrics that you can do it, <laughs> to evaluate whether this task is actually reliable in the first place. The, the balloon analog one? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, well, the uh, we've used it and it's um, really great because it really, um, you know, I think it just it feels you get that visceral feeling of oh that balloon is could that pop right? yeah. and yeah, yeah yeah and we this was a task where we found that we were interested in how stress affect decision making and we found that mm-hmm. stress made men more risk seeking and females less risk seeking and that mm-hmm. other researchers since found that on the Iowa gambling task too so this is where you know on the balloon analog risk task it makes men better the stress makes men better decision makers because they're not right. risky enough and they become more risky in the Iowa it's the uh, other way around okay. so yeah okay so so far we talked about the positivity and decision making but there's obviously not all going well in old age and one thing mm-hmm. that does happen is that you do have among some people, memory loss. Actually, speaking about uh, the first time we met, we talked about 23andMe. Uh, so I uh, did a 23andMe just recently. Oh, and, oh uh, turns okay. Out, turns out, yeah, yeah my mate, but I don't think we are that related, Mara. It's just like <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't find you among my close relatives. Uh, but uh, but one, one thing that uh, uh, I, was ve- I was very excited about finding about all possible diseases that I may have. Turns out I don't oh, yeah. have much, except for 10% chance of a late onset Alzheimer's. And that's what we want to talk about. About. So the Alzheimer's disease mm-hmm. and late onset Alzheimer's sounds like that's like normal aging, but okay, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's not early onset; it's late onset. Uh, so Alzheimer's disease, and you recently talked about it, uh, where you said I think that Alzheimer's may be viewed more as a spectrum on which we all find ourselves. It's not so, uh, just something that is like binary. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it's related to aging? Yeah, so I told you that we're really interested in the locus ceruleus, which is this small Mm -hmm. 
brainstem region that is the source of most of the brain's noradrenaline or norepinephrine, this neurotransmitter that is all about all types of arousal. So whether you feel more awake or, you know, someone startles you or you hear a loud gunshot or you're angry or really excited. And it seems like it's this region that integrates all of this information about arousal and then can modulate the rest of your brain activity in these moments when there might be something really important for you to do. Mm-hmm. And it's been really interesting because there are these uh, researchers um, named the Brocks, and actually one of them is deceased, so now it's, it's just um, Brock himself. He developed the staging system that's used for Alzheimer's disease. And he did this with post-mortem brains where he would look in particular at abnormal tau. And tau is a protein that's on the outside of these microtubules inside axons. So it's almost like scaffolding that Mm -hmm. helps hold together these pathways between uh, different brain regions. Mm -hmm. And it's constantly, it's got magnetic properties that allow it to stick to these microtubules and it's constantly being moved around and, and generated. And what happens in Alzheimer's disease is that it becomes what's called hyperphosphorylated. Its magnetic charge gets messed up and it no longer sticks to the microtubules and it ends up getting into tangles with each other. And this very early stage when it's just hyperphosphorylated, the Brocks first noticed when they their traditional staging of Alzheimer's disease, it started in the memory areas of the cortex, in entorhinal cortex and then hippocampus. And then um, a few years ago, they published findings from over 2,000 of their postmortem samples where they reported that they'd observed that the hyperphosphorylated tau was seen very early in in the in their young adult samples that they had you know someone who had died at age mm-hmm. 20 was quite likely to have hyperphosphorylated tau in the locus ceruleus and quite often nowhere else in the brain so from that they deduced that the first place they they saw this pathology was in the locus ceruleus and they saw it as young as childhood But um, they didn't have very many child brains, and most of them didn't have it. Mm -hmm. But by the time they had 100 postmortem brains that were between 31 and 40 years old, and all 100 at least had hyperphosphorylated tau in the locus ceruleus, and some, you know, small percentage, around 20% or so, had it both in locus ceruleus and in the entorhinal cortex, which would qualify them based on their original staging as stage one Alzheimer's. But of course, mm-hmm. these people in their 30s were probably doing just fine. Mm-hmm. But what it what it suggests is that this is a very slow-moving, they call it prion-like disease, you know, that there's this abnormal protein, that configuration that's happened, and that it spreads through the locus ceruleus axons through to these memory regions and then beyond to the rest of the cortex. And so it's really changed how I think about Alzheimer's disease. It seems mm-hmm. that it's much more like cardiovascular disease. We probably, the vast majority of us adults have at least some atherosclerosis in our veins. We have at least some indication of, you know, the most small amount, at least, of, of heart disease. And I think the same is true for us in Alzheimer's disease. And, and like heart disease, it's, it's this continuum mm-hmm. where... We want to be on the healthy side and there's all sorts of things that we can do, just like heart disease, to um, maintain right. our health and slow down that, that progression of, of pathology. So what can we do? 
So it it is a lot like health, like heart disease. In fact, the cardiovascular health is a big input into. It's very correlated with the degree of Alzheimer's disease. So that's one Mm -hmm. thing. Staying healthy and being physically active is very good. There's also, as you might expect, dietary things that relate as well. They they call Alzheimer's sometimes that it might be like another type of diabetes because it's also very related to diabetic conditions. And there's been some argument that, um, you know, the ability to metabolize sugar decreases in particular in Alzheimer's disease. So changing one's diet to be less um, sugar focused and more Mm -hmm. likely to feed your brain ketones might be helpful. And I think, is it called The End of Alzheimer's? There's the most amazing book I've seen, or most amazing approach is really a a comprehensive approach. So I think his name is Bredesen. Uh, He Mm -hmm. has done this series of case studies where there are people around their 50s or 60s who have had to quit work uh, because they're coming down with Alzheimer's disease and can no longer handle it anymore. And he basically developed these interventions that involve the kitchen sink. So everything that you've ever heard of that might help Mm -hmm. with the disease, like reducing stress and Mm -hmm. optimizing your diet and uh, taking resveratrol and, you know, just like every, everything that you uh, might've heard of that there's evidence for. And these people actually were, he's got a published paper with, I think 10 case studies where people were able to go back to work and Mm -hmm. actually reverse the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And so I think that it is something, it's a system. And he he talks about how it's been difficult for him to get NIH funding because he believes that it's, you know, it's a multimodal approach that's needed. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's difficult to study scientifically because you you can't narrow it down Mm. as effectively. But I think that that's very likely to be true. And of course, then there are individual factors that you can break out and study that will have, you know, some small percentage effect as well. Right. Okay, Mara. So this podcast is about wisdom um, and taking wiser decisions. You know, through all the research that you've done, do you, do you have any sense of, of what people can do to help their brains take wiser decisions as, as they as they get older? Well, I w- was thinking about this in thinking about this podcast, like what is a wise decision? Right. It's a really hard question. Yeah, yeah very good question. <laughs> we have 26 other yeah. episodes if you want to listen to that to find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think from what I study, probably the wisdom angle is that as people get older, they are taking into account the emotional aspects of the decision perhaps a little more. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that can be very helpful um, in thinking, especially if the decisions are about other people and and how that might play out. So I think that that's something that seems to happen naturally in aging, that people are weighting the emotional aspects of a decision more heavily. And that that's something that can be quite wise and, and quite helpful. So that's encouraging. So it looks like from some the effects you've studied anyway, that that, that sort of trend is at play mm-hmm. anyway. So that, that's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mara, Thank you so much for sharing your deep uh, expertise with us. I have learned a a ridiculous amount in a short period of time, and we really appreciate you um, being open to a very wide-ranging discussion and really appreciate the time. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mara. Thank you. And now it's time for a summary. 
First, we spoke about the positivity effect, in which, relative to younger people, older people tend to pay more attention to positive information over negative information. While it might seem at first that this would be the result of physical changes in the brain, Mara's work suggests that it's, at least in part, due to a shift in time perspective that comes with ageing. As we perceive we have less time left, we shift to focus more on emotionally meaningful goals. We then spoke about longitudinal studies showing that older people tend to become generally more positive themselves until into their 60s or 70s. They also tend to become worse at recognising negative emotions in others, though, rather than being due to the positivity effect, this seems to be a result of a shift in older people to focusing their attention on other people's mouths rather than eyes, and so they miss telltale signs of others' negative emotional states. Finally, we spoke about a different perspective on Alzheimer's disease. Rather than thinking of it as a disease we have or we don't have, it may be more helpful to think of Alzheimer's disease more like cardiovascular disease. There is an Alzheimer's spectrum, which we're all on, most of us having it at least to some degree. That's it for this episode. Until next time on the On Wisdom Podcast. <laughs>